From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Sarah Johnson Allen always enjoyed writing, but as a kid, she never considered it as a vocation. Growing up in Raleigh, North Carolina with nearby relatives who farmed tobacco and then poultry and then hogs, she found herself in upstate New York for sixth grade when her preacher father moved the family. She returned to North Carolina in time for her junior year of high school, went off to Guilford College, and started a career in sales. It wasn't until she landed a job at Emerson College in Boston and took a fiction writing workshop on a lark that she recognized writing as a calling. She enrolled in Emerson's MFA program and graduated. Nearly 20 years later, she writes about place, how it shapes us, and what it means to be displaced and replaced. Down Here We Come Up, which took more than 15 years to write, started as an exploration of what Sarah Johnson Allen describes as the jarring differences between the northern and southern United States in regards to social class. Set in southeastern North Carolina, the book Black Lawrence Press ultimately published raises questions about what defines family and a home place and whether ancestral ties are enough. Sarah Johnson Allen's short fiction has appeared in Pank, Smoke Long Quarterly, and Reckon Review. She's won at least three literary awards, and Down Here We Come Up is her first novel. Sarah Johnson Allen, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to have you with us. Now, the title. So in the book, it's the heroine's mother, Jackie, who will we'll get to the kind of sketchy con artist type that she is in a minute. But she says, quote, Katie, you may not remember this, but down here we come up when we're called. We come up to the altar when we're moved by the Spirit. We come up when folks need help. I don't know how they do it up there, but down here we rise to the occasion. What does that mean to you? Well, I think with this um, book, the ideas between North and South, I had this big vertical in mind. And that's how I talk. I say to my kids, when we go down there, we're going to do this. Or up here, we don't have air conditioning. But down there, (laughs) everyone has air conditioning. So I really, um, on a surface level, I think of my life in a vertical. Because like you said, I move back and forth from South to North and South and North again. So... There's just this sort of down and up idea in my head visually. Um, And I think as I wrote these characters, um, I think what Jackie's talking about there, she's manipulating her daughter a bit, but these sort of idea, the expectations we have of, you know, you're called to do something. And for me, thinking about the South or the Southern culture I grew up in, there's like expectations. I think there's expectations in every culture, but just for my own is like, when I was young, you're, obviously my father was a preacher until he changed vocation, but you're expected to go to Sunday school. You're expected to go to church. You wear your white, you know, you wear your white tights. And like my kids wear a T-shirt if we go to church. So I was really fascinated by these ideas of like what we expect other, our people to do. And then I think I've been thinking about this on a deeper level where it's like each of these characters in this book is being called 
to do something they don't really want to do. Um, I guess I am kind of interested in the idea of calling. Like, yeah, um, they're asked to do something they don't really want to do, but they have to do it anyway. So this kind of like spirit that moves you, maybe in a not religious way, but just like you can't not do it at the end of the day. Yeah. And as you say that, I mean, Kate, your protagonist, your heroine, is also moving back and forth Mm -hmm. between the North and the South. And she's we we meet her, I guess, in Boston, in the North, in Massachusetts, somewhere. And she's in a relationship that she entered on her own steam, but maybe doesn't really want to be in. Well, the vertical on that one would be social class. So up here is her boyfriend's family, Boston Brahmin family, right? People who formed the United States in many ways. Their ties go back to the King of England, (laughs) giving them land, um, all the way through to the opium slave rum trades in the 1800s. Um, so that's the up. She's from the down, like from a family of sharecroppers. Uh, and so that, that's the vertical there is that she is in a much safer place than where she grew up. I'm very interested in this idea of it should be better there. It's safer there. There's resources there. But for her, it's not better in many ways because it's just wrong for her. She feels like something's wrong. And in fact, there is something wrong. But her twin brother is on that vertical of social class where he's up here. He's gone to Harvard. He has access to this. And he's escaped down here. Um, so, I, yeah. I, and that was right for him. Yes. Maybe. And the tension in their sibling relationship, which I'm very interested in sibling relationships, is he's not wrong and she's not wrong. And even though they're twins, like, they, it, and they're both wrong, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so can we talk about Kate's mother? Uh, Jackie, she is just uh, so sketch. I mean, such a she's a con artist. I mean, she's a hustler who's who hustles everything and everyone. Everything is a hustle in this woman's life. And your book, I think, is dedicated to your mother. Mm-hmm. And you, <laughs> and from what I've heard from you about your mother, you guys have a great relationship. So how do you go about writing? Listen, Jackie is not my mother. <laughs> my mother did nothing but, like I think I've said in, like, I forget where, but, like, she would pay me 25 cents to pay. She also was a writer, um, very talented writer. But she would pay me, like, 25 cents a page in my journal to write. She when we moved to upstate New York, advocated for me in like an educational situation where they were like, you're from the South, you need to go into remedial classes. And she was a public school teacher, so she's like, here are their national test scores and fought with them and said they shouldn't be in a remedial class. Like my mother's nothing but an advocate for me. Um, Jackie, I can't write things really close to my life. Like Kate's not like me. I've had some of the experiences or been to some of the places she is, but I'm not like her. Um, My mother's nothing like Jackie. I have met a couple people in my life who are like Jackie, who everything because of their own damage. And Mm -hmm. I hope I got that through with her, that her own damage, her own Jackie's own loss and trauma has made her be so transactional, has caused her to be transactional. I think sometimes also when you have no resources, you have to be transactional. Um, So. I, oh, wait, I was going to say something about Jackie, though. Yeah. So you were saying you you hope that it, it came across, that it's her own 
damage and loss that that caused her to be that way. Yeah, and she pays a price because both her children flee. But she might be my favorite character. And as a mother, I can understand. I hope to not be like her, uh, but I have way more resources than her. But when you want to, you just do the wrong thing with your children over and over. And you don't want to do the wrong thing with your children, but you just keep doing the wrong thing. Like, I could relate to her a lot. And also, I think she represents some thwarted potential. Yeah. Um, that she shares Luke's brilliance, but there's no scenario where a woman in her generation in this situation coming from a sharecropper family really escapes. She escapes to a Bible college for a little while, but that doesn't last, right? Um, so I have a lot of empathy for her, but yes, I also have been traumatized, like light traumatized, like by people in my life who were very manipulative or con, ar- con artisty, but they weren't in my family. So I think I, looking back, was processing some of those people, like, why are they like that? Yeah. Am I like that? Are we all like that? <laughs> what a way to process somebody by diving into their life and creating an understandable narrative for them. I mean, that's quite beautiful. <laughs> Can we talk about where this is set? I said Southeastern North Carolina in the introduction, but you mentioned Wilmington a lot. I do. And you know what's so strange? When you move away from where you're from, things start merging together. So I like I said, my family's farm um, is outside of Wallace. So we went there all the time when I was a kid. My grandmother lived there till she passed away, then my uncle and cousins. And even after my parents were living in upstate New York or Missouri for a while, I always went back and visited there. So because we moved around, there were two places that were kind of the same in my life. That place, that farm outside of Wallace and Emerald Isle, where we would rent a house every year and go to the beach. In the meantime, I kind of forgot until I arrived this week for family vacation, plus really wonderful book events like this, how much time I actually spent in Wilmington. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's the McDonald's I had heat stroke. Oh, that's Johnny Mercer's where I used to watch my high school boyfriend who went to UNCW play Mortal Kombat. Oh, I've I, my other boyfriend was from Castle Hayne. Um, you know, so... And then when I started writing these things, I think I emailed you in a panic late in the game where I was like, those two places are actually different, right? Mm -hmm. Very different. Mm -hmm. Wilmington and um, outside of Wallace. So I was sort of like, I have a, maybe have a little setting problem where I wanted to talk about both of these places and also the relationship of rural to development, um, which even just driving here, I was like, that wasn't here, that wasn't here, that wasn't here. Um, so and I kinda, even in Wallace, that's changing. Right. And so kind of finding of it, and it is a fictional place, but there are industrial hog farms that are running into creeks. So like that's a particular part of North Carolina, a little further from here, but not very far. Right. right. So it's fictional, but it's somewhere in that space. When is this set? So this is set in 2006. Right. Um, that's when I started writing it. That's why okay. it's that, that makes sense. I just because so much has happened since then that it's, you know, you can you can tell that this is happening somewhere in the early aughts or right or or the nineties. And this is going to lead us to our first break. You're listening to Coastline. Sarah Johnson Allen is the author of Down Here We Come Up a novel that explores culture, class, and how migrant workers live in North Carolina. After this short break, we'll hear about the moment she realized that writing could be more than a pastime. Stay with us. 
I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Sarah Johnson Allen earned her MFA from Emerson College, saw her short fiction published in the literary magazines Pank, Smoke Long Quarterly, and Wreck and Review. A series of awards for her writing kept her novel writing work alive, and in August of 2023, Black Lawrence Press is out with her first. Down Here We Come Up. Now, early in the book, Sarah, you describe Kate, your protagonist, as being able to remove difficult memories with scalpel-like precision. This is a woman who has survived a hustler of a mother, a, a mother who even hustled her own kids because I guess that's all she knew how to do. Uh, would you read just how you describe how how Kate manages her emotions and rough memories. Sure. Usually when a memory rose up, Kate had the ability to remove it with fast, accurate scalpel incisions that could cut the memory right out before it could take her over. Cut. It was only 48 hours of her life. Cut. It was something that she had already decided and couldn't take back like emptying a clip of ammunition that can't be reloaded. Cut. It was something that was better for everyone. Cut. That puzzle piece clicking feeling when she smelled her baby's skin. Cut. Running her bottom lip across the impossible petal softness of her daughter's head. Cut. Surgical precision. That had worked for eight years. Cut it out before the loss could flow through her. Follow Luke to Boston. Cut. When Charlie asked her out five years ago and she already knew they were wrong together, she still said yes. Cut. Every time she saw a four-year-old, then a five-year-old, then this year, eight-year-olds, Kate searched them for the features that might have formed from that sweet newborn face she had briefly held against her own. Cut. Somewhere that girl cut. Kate had cut and cut and cut. Sarah Johnson Allen reading from her first novel, Down Here We Come Up, out now through Black Lawrence Press. Now, this is something probably every human does in one way or another. We lean away from difficult feelings and memories and thoughts because we often don't know what else to do. The way you describe this, it sound, and that's early on in the book when she's deciding, okay, she has to answer the call to go see her mother. Her mother has called her back down south. You talk about the calling. Every character in this book has a calling. Is this part of hers? Because it sounds like each cut makes her smaller. Mm. That's of great observation. (laughs) Um, I think she's avoided it 
like we all tell ourselves that the things that happened to us like didn't matter that we didn't like or we like try to put them behind us and some of that's good we don't want to dwell but i think she's convinced her or tried to convince herself that giving this baby i don't give too much away this is pretty obvious in the beginning this baby she's given up for adoption that she should be over like she should let that go knowing this daughter has a better life but she can't let it go um she should let it go i mean if she was my daughter yes (laughs) i i guess like you know she's 17 with no resources so in her at the time uh her boyfriend is in jail so she she has been traumatized by her own upbringing her mother has not been a great role model. Um, so in some ways, yes, I would advise her not to take that on if she was, you know, I don't know. Um, I forget what your question was. Remind me. Yeah. So her calling, like, oh. even though it, it sounds like in this passage, there are some cuts that she in, self-inflicts emotionally when she's answering the call to go south to see her mother. I think that maybe so I think there's a lot of like history about ourselves and our regions and we just want to cut it out. Right. But it's not going to work always like ignoring where your origins are from, what you've been through. In her case, having this baby, even if financially and like for that baby's sake, it's better to let that baby go. She can't let go of that. So for her calling, hers is both emotional that she's going to go. Well, she's going to get manipulated by her mother to go get some information about where that kid is. Um, I forgot what I was going to say again. Can you remind me? So she, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure where oh, you were heading physical. with that. But a lot of these characters are physically being called to a different place. So she's being called physically to North Carolina. Maribel, another character, physically is going to go wait at a border for her children physically to move north over a border. So I guess it's interesting because, yeah, the calling is both people's emotional landscapes of what they're dealing with. But there is actually a lot of like driving (laughs) in this book, a lot of movement. And someone like Luke is resisting that, both the emotional movement and the physical return to a place. And this is Kate's twin brother. Yes. Now you describe Kate throughout the book as movie star beautiful. Every time she walks into a room, people stop and turn and notice her. And it sounds like it's a little bit of a blessing and a curse, just depending on on the situation. Why did you decide that? And why was that an important element of her character? So this is really a craft question, we would call it in the writer world. I'm a writer who I have to separate my characters from myself pretty deeply in order to have the momentum to write forward. So one of the first things that happened when I was trying to describe this character in scene is I just made her tan. I know we're on the radio, but if you could see me, I'm like a red hair, <laughs> redhead with freckles. <laughs> so once I made that decision, like she's going to have like really dark, thick hair. I look more like Jackie, like thin, like like reddish hair. And I have pale skin and you can see my veins through my skin. Like it's separated. Like I learned in my MFA program about author, narrator, character merge, where you kind of all like your author, if your author and your narrator and your character are all like behind the same lens your narrative won't be as powerful. So I think that's where it started is she looked really different from me. And then I did intellectually, I think I was interested in the idea of the male gaze. Um, I have had a couple friends where if I went out with them or I went walked down the street, I was like, why is everyone looking at like this is something on my like, why is everyone staring at us? And I would realize, oh, 
they're staring at her. And I would watch my friends, like you said, for negative and positive, navigate what that meant to have the whole world look at you and expect certain things of you. Or they give you things, but they would take things away too. So that was my personal experience. It was sort of like separating myself from that character. Which is part of Kate's trauma as well. I mean, it may be part of her power in the world with men, but trauma too. And I think she is someone who would probably fly under the radar. Like she's not seeking center stage, um, but that's going to put her on center stage. But it's also, and this is bad in my opinion, Luke is going to get into Harvard because he obsessively obsessed about that since he was 10. She is going to gain entry into Charlie's Boston, Brahman, Harvard world in part because she's in that orbit with her brother on campus, but because of the way she looks. If she looked differently, she probably wouldn't be living in his house. So her physical beauty helps her transcend class. Yes, which I think is a common story. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I was interested in that idea. Yeah. Part of uh, this story is about the lives of migrant workers. And in this house that Kate grew up in, somewhere between New Hanover County and maybe Pender County, Jackie is dying, and she is now living with migrant workers in her home. And there's this character, Maribel, whom you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. who is from Mexico, who comes along. And when Kate arrives back at her family home, her mother's home, it looks as though Maribel has replaced her as Jackie's daughter. So that's part of the replacement issue that's coming up for Kate. But you yourself, Sarah Johnson Allen, growing up in Raleigh, you had your own experience of and perception of migrant workers. What did you see growing up and then on your family's farm as well? I think just anyone in the last 20, 25 years who has been, um, has lived or even visited people in eastern North Carolina will know there's a massive influx of migrant workers or immigrants coming primarily from Mexico and Central America, in large part because of the economic demand of the agricultural industry and the shifts in that. Um, So again, I live in New England and people know the triangle and they know OBX. They have no idea what's in between. They have no idea that the entire nation's pork is produced in those, like that space you're talking about, um, in those counties. So I definitely knew people who had come to the United States through that sort of, like, again, I think about North north and South, like, pipelines. Like, so there's the North and the South, but there's also the United States, and in this case, Mexico, and people traveling that p- sort of pipeline of demand for workers. And so I definitely knew people who had been part of that and, again, had watched not just, like, and understood a little bit about their working conditions, but also sort of about, like, my family were poor farmers. Not my, Sorry, not my family, my father's family, my, right. my ancestors. But they had the ability to possess the land eventually. But their entire populations who were not even free, right, they couldn't own the land, or even people who might be here undocumented can't possess the place that they work and yield profit or or crops. So that's something I was really interested in. Um, That's a question of rights. It's a question of freedom. 
It's such an interesting. So you say that in your family's case, they were poor farmers. It was a family farm starting out with tobacco. Mm-hmm. And they eventually moved to industrialized farming, you said, poultry and then hogs. So a lot, um, there's a book, it's called Wastelands. I hope I get the name right. I think it's Corbin Addison, I believe. I've just started reading it and it's stunning to me because I'm reading what I watched happen. About corporate farming. About corporate farming. So I'm not an expert. um, But what I remember is when I was really little, there's a picture of me too, like at two years old on the farm where my dad grew up. Um, where my grandfather was a tobacco farmer, and then my uncle took over that farm, and I'm holding like a pig, like a baby pig, right, in the mud. But I remember in the 90s when the industrial turkey houses went in, and I, and I did, like my uncle would pay us to kind of go pick up dead turkeys. And so that that is an experience I had, clearly nothing like relying on that for a livelihood. But I know what that smells like when they put in the hog houses and dug the lagoon, so I don't know what your, your North Carolina listeners probably would know this, but you yeah. you dig a big lagoon, the hog waste goes into it, and then you spray it on the fields as fertilizer. And that book, I think it's called Wastelands, really elucidates like the power structures behind that that I didn't know, but I saw that. Um, so there were a lot of things here that I saw, experiences I had, um, watching you know new groups of people come in and like enhance a community, become part of a community. But I did have to do a lot of research where it's like, well, you can know of some people who've had these experiences, but you have to kind of go back and understand like what's really happening here. Um, as far as like, like, again, migrant workers, like I don't didn't totally understand all the economic systems there. So you raise questions in the book about what their rights are, having worked the land as hard as they have, but they will never have the opportunity Particularly, I guess, if we're talking about undocumented people. Right. Undocumented people could work a land for 20 years and they would not be able to inherit legally. Their children would. Right. So I think that's like if the children are born here. Um, It's like this legacy. In the United States, you mean? Right. Yes. Um, So, yes, I think I was really interested in that. Like, yeah. (laughs) The work being an investment just for the moment, like as a as a meal ticket, but nothing beyond that. Yeah. Like and there's I, no building wealth. Yes. And I'm going back to in my head, I just jumped to sort of that I'm holding my hand up high, right, from the high to the low. Charlie, who's from this Boston Brahmin family, is going to have this legacy of inheritance. He's going to be handed properties that are worth millions of dollars in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Um, because, but, and his family was able to pass that down. That's generational wealth. Right. That's... And Jackie could pass that house to uh, Kate or whoever, but it's not worth as much. But still, the possession of land, and I think this is from moving around a lot, yeah. um, to have a place to return to, no, no matter how poisoned the water or um, how complicated with abusive relationships or maybe not abusive, just difficult family relationships a place is a place. And so that's, I think, what Kate is really searching for. She thinks she's looking for her daughter. She thinks she's running from Charlie. I think what she's really looking for is like something that's her own. And not to blur the narratives here, because we've talked about not doing that, the author versus the protagonist (laughs) in the novel. But you have your own questions about where you're from, going back and forth between North Carolina and, and the North. You 
have asked the question, do I have a right to say I'm from North Carolina? And in your bio, even, in several different places, it says that you're mostly, mostly in parentheses from North Carolina. How do you feel? Why are you conflicted about that? I am so deeply conflicted about that. (laughs) I mean, we just got back, flew in. Usually we drive, but we flew in this year. And we're like standing in a Bojangles. And I want to affect an accent immediately to blend. But I can't because my brother and my kids are standing right next to me. They know I don't have an accent anymore. Um, I'm wearing like a – I was actually wearing this dress. Where I'm like, this dress doesn't look like what I used to wear when I lived here, which – Again. It's a, it's a black dress, but it's a summer dress. <laughs> right. Like I, I don't know. I have a I have a lot of this idea of like blending in, being a chameleon, and it's all from a lack of a sense of belonging. Even when we would go visit that place with the hog farm where again my uncle he's elderly now, but like I grew up with him on that farm. We were always called city slickers, which was like just sweet. He wasn't trying to hurt us or like it was a joke, right? Um but I was like, I don't belong here. And I remember once I couldn't understand what he was saying. We were in the turkey houses and he was like, go around yonder and get my eyeglasses. And I did not, my brother and I couldn't understand him. And we lived in Raleigh at the time. Like we had accents. Um, and I felt shame. Like, why can't I understand my family member? I'm embarrassed. And then when we moved up to upstate New York, like I said, um, I don't remember this, but my mother had to deal with this. Um we were like put in remedial classes because it's like, well, the South's educational system's inferior, so your kids will fall behind. And my mom's like, well, she wasn't gifted and talented in Raleigh, and Raleigh has an excellent school system. They're like, sorry, but that's the South. This is the North. So I spent a year that's in a remedial stunning. class. My accent was the word I remember everyone looking at me is I was like, like the cement sidewalk. Like cement, mm-hmm. right? You put the emphasis on the first syllable, right? And I just remember their faces, and I'm like, and now my accent is well gone. <laughs> like I don't have one. Although my husband would say, if I drink or I'm around my family long enough, it comes out. And I'm not alone in this. Like people who have had to change where they live or even navigate social. Cl- I haven't had such a rise and fall of social class that Kate has. That that's separate, I think. But the regional moving. Um, has been very big in my life. And I don't feel like I belong. And I live in a town now that I love, but I know that's not my town. But here it doesn't, like, you're right. I had to ask my mother. I was like, I don't think I have the right to tell a story about North Carolina. And this is why my mother's not like Jackie. She was like, what are you talking about? You were born here? You went to elementary school here? You graduated high school here? You went to college here? Yeah. (laughs) Your family, that part of land I keep talking about is 300 years deep of family history. And but her mother's also from, like, Carrie Moore, like, 100, 200 years back. So, of course, I have a right to tell that story. I, th- I think, not in a bad way, I think a lot of the literary world right now, in a good way, I think is interrogating, like, who can tell what story? I'm so glad that you brought that up because you also had a sensitivity reader read your manuscript. And... That, to a non-writer, is such an interesting idea. Can you just uh, briefly tell us, because I know we're going to get interrupted and have to go to break, (laughs) uh, but we'll talk more about this on the other side. What is a sensitivity writer? I mean, reader. A a sensitivity reader is someone who might have an expertise in a particular identity marker that you don't possess, who can check you on 
not just facts, but like if you're interpreting things correctly. And we're going to talk about what you were checked on when we come back. You're listening to Coastline, talking with Sarah Johnson-Allen, author of the novel Down Here We Come Up. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Down Here We Come Up may have taken the better part of 15 years to write, but it has arrived through Black Lawrence Press after winning the Big Moose Prize. Each year, Black Lawrence Press selects a winner for an unpublished novel. The prize is open to new, emerging, and established writers, and in 2022, that award went to Sarah Johnson Allen for her first novel. Down Here We Come Up. Now, Sarah, just before we went to break, we were talking about what a sensitivity reader is. You had one read your book, and what was what specifically was this person looking for? Well, um, I feel like I asked her. So I got very lucky, and I just went to a site. You can you, again, you can find sensitivity readers about a variety of topics. Um, but I was looking for someone who would understand the immigrant experience and also like uh, immigration around the border. So I was very lucky that I got connected with Alejandra Oliva. She just had a book come out this spring or late or early summer for, uh, called River Mouth, and it's nonfiction. And she was really, really an, she is an expert on immigration in my mind. Um, she was a translator for people seeking asylum. So I had. Um, the press, sorry, Black Lawrence, hired her essentially to read the book to make sure that as a white woman, yes, you can know people who've been through something, but that does not mean you're going to get it right. And we don't want to do anything with harmful stereotypes. We don't want to accidentally, even if we're trying to operate in like the, the, a kind heart, like we, we, we can get things wrong. We can all get things wrong. So she was looking for any evidence of that. And so... Um, Thankfully, overall, it was good because <laughs> you're kind of scared. And, and sensitivity readers will say sometimes, like, no, this book is operating on racial stereotypes. This book is, you know, it, that could happen where someone tells you this is you've got this wrong. So um, it can affect like the fundamental underpinnings yes. of the story. So it's scary. It's always scary to hand anyone your work. So but, but there are a couple of key things. One which I was so grateful, again, for her expertise, because you can do internet research all day. But she was like, oh, no, it would be ICE, not INS. So I had references to, like, INS, not ICE. Or, um, But one sort of fundamental thing that I did go – so those were sort of simpler edits, but she um, said someone like Maribel would never smuggle drugs over the border. Oh, that's like a – I guess a spoiler. I don't know if I should have said that. Um, and she doesn't smuggle drugs over the border. But I guess – She's like, she would never be involved in drug trafficking. Predominantly, it's white people who bring drugs over the border. Um, she would, you know, apply for asylum. She would, like, I forget exactly what she said, but I understood, like, I had gotten that 
piece of it. I why mean, was Maribel coming here, just so that we can clarify? what? Why did she come over the border in the first place? And was she here legally? So I changed some things about that. So initially, she was like somebody who would have left Mexico and ended up on this like migrant worker kind of trajectory. But late in the game, um, I, well, not that late in the game, I realized I had made her an English teacher. I made her middle class. I made her in a stable living situation. And so in some ways, if she, she comes here illegally, but if she had citizenship, she would be in a higher social class than Kate. Yeah. And so I liked that play, but because Kate has citizenship, she has more rights and privileges than someone who's better educated than her, um, who again, original, so she was living in Juarez, and when this book is set, I hope I have this factually right, but it, for a while, Juarez was the murder capital of the world. Um, because of drug cartels, corrupt police, the government, all, and also the United States' influence as like this superpower that sits on top of Mexico and kind of ships its corruption down south. Um, so Maribel gets into a situation of sort of like, I guess, fleeing from a corrupt situation with police because she's blown the whistle on di- women who are disappearing from factories in Juarez. So I did do a lot of research about that. Um, but again, Alejandro was able to say like, this, she would not risk some of the risks that are taken with her children. Your sensitivity reader. Yes. Yeah. Now, you get to, as a writer, you get to weigh that. So I did make some changes around, like, she's fleeing political persecution. I also, I, I had another friend of mine who's from that area, and she read it, and she said, you know, you describe it perfectly. I watched, I've been to Juarez, like, a million years ago, but I watched enough YouTube videos. I can describe it. Um, she's like, but you got it totally wrong. You got the border wrong. She's like, you can't understand the sense of pride people have in these towns, even though they're sort of like the United States is like kind of, again, sitting on top. You have like all this, like, again, corruption and drug cartels. There's like a wild sense of culture and vibrancy in these places. So I listen. So the point of asking people to read stuff like this is to listen and to make these changes so the work is more authentic. Um and you're not getting things as wrong. As a writer, you're always going to get some things wrong. But now, a lot of people are going to appreciate that. Like this is it's another check. You're you're checking the tone and whether you're including um, racial stereotypes and and whether you're writing this through the lens of a white American female. And um, but there are going to be other people who hear oh. So we also have the imagination police now and the fiction writing police is. Is sensitivity reading controversial for some of those reasons? I mean, where do you fall when you think about uh, putting out something that is a work of fiction and yet having somebody else read it for accuracy? I think to answer your first question, yes, it's controversial, I think, to some people especially. I think all feedback is good. I think... I think you should ask yourself, why am I telling this story? Like, why why am I, like, if I'm a middle-aged white man, why am I writing a book from the perspective of a 14-year-old Cambodian girl? Which I don't, that, I made that up. Um, but, uh, or as a white woman, why am I writing a story in 1930s Mississippi from the perspective of a black man? And it, I, I just think intellectually you have to ask yourself that. Now, I, I was really careful. I never inhabit Maribel's point of view. Um, I did inhabit a, a woman from much, like I didn't grow up poor, Kate did. So I, and I, I even thought about that, like, am, you know, am I getting that right? I don't think it's ever wrong to check and interrogate 
what you think you're entitled to say. Now, I do think when Alejandra Oliva was saying, again, I don't want to quote her directly. This is just my memory of her feedback um, without it in front of me. When I was thinking, okay, someone like might, someone like Maribel who had a passport, like she was, again, she's college educated. Like she, um, I forgot what I was going to say. Hold on. So she, okay, so Maribel. I remember what I was going to say. But as a mother, so this was sort of, Maribel is a mother of three children. Yeah. And she's trying to get them back. And while I understand that there are things that, like, most people wouldn't do necessarily or, like, like I agree. White people are the people who are trafficking the drugs. I believe my sensitivity on that. But I also wanted to explore that I, there's nothing I wouldn't do to get my children back. I would not care about legality. I would not care about violence. I'm assuming. God forbid I'm ever in that situation. I just think that's a human like if your children are away from you, it's you a biological do imperative. Exactly. So, I think that it's a, to summarize. I think it's really important for writers to listen. To ignore that conversation, I think, is a mistake. However, like I would tell my students, getting critique, you do have the right to decide what you take and what you leave. But you also have to face, like, if someone says, "I grew up like Kate, and you got it wrong," I have to say that you're right. I probably got it wrong. Right. So you kind of have to. It's a lot to navigate, but it's good. Let's talk about uh, the business of writing for a little while, because you said that you enjoyed writing a lot as a kid, but it just didn't even enter your consciousness that that was something you could do as a job, as a career, that work was something else. And you took some fiction writing workshops here and there, but then you landed in this workshop at Emerson College and a light switched on. Can you talk about that moment? Sure. And I, I feel like I don't listen very well. Like I had a, I took a class at NC State with an author that some North Carolina folks might remember, Tim McLaurin. He passed away. He was my writing teacher at NC State one summer. He like bring pillowcases full of snakes to class, which if anyone knows Tim McLaurin, this will make sense. And he said, you're the real thing. You're going to do this. This will happen for you. It might take a while because I was only 19. But I didn't change my trajectory. I was like, I will be a CEO. I will be a journalist. <laughs> I will be an actress. So it took really into, I was probably 24 in that class. I think it took going into the work w- world, telemarketing, like travel sales. And I was an assistant at Emerson. It's not like I had a professor job. I was a, I was an assistant. Um, and when I went into that workshop, it was with Ben Brooks, who's I think still at Emerson, and I was just like, this is it for me. Like, I would pay if I had the money to sit at this table the rest of my life, like in the workshop environment with 10 people talking about literature and writing. But if I can't have that, then maybe I can teach. Or So that's kind of where I was like, I need to be in this room forever. Yeah. And then so so you entered the MFA program there. You, you got your degree. You started writing down here we come up, and this was a 15-year-ish project. What happens when you are working on something and you put it down for a while? Like, why did this take 15 years? Was it putting it down and saying, eh, it doesn't want to go that way. I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. Go do something else and come back. How, what, what was that like? The, the reason I stopped and started so many times had to do with work and money. 
So I did work full time through my MFA program, which in retrospect, I should have found a fully funded program. But, you know, I just again, I kind of like fly blind (laughs) through a lot of my life. But I was working first as an assistant at Dana-Farber Hospital um, in Boston. And then I started marketing writing. And long story short, that trajectory led me to doing what I now, which is teaching communication and marketing communication. Um, But. In those 15 years, I, I did start the book, but then I started a tenure track teaching position in an area I didn't go to grad school for. So that's like double work is to figure out like, oh, what's going on in advertising? What's happening in media and culture? Like I also had three children. Now, the thing that's great, I can say now on this very day, <laughs> the day after pub date, <laughs> is the book I was writing then was really about will Kate choose her boyfriend Charlie or will she choose Smith and sort of the regional and class implications thereof. Now I think this book is about so much more and I'm grateful um, that I can only say this now. (laughs) I'm sort of grateful now that because of the industry and because of the own demands on myself or not myself, the own demands of like working and managing a family and cleaning your house and like daily everything. It took this long because it's a much better book for it. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot to do. And and many other people with writing ambitions might have that kind of a full plate and never write, just feel really that gets squeezed out. So how did you do it? When did you find the time? Morning, evening, in the middle of the night? What do you do? So for me, I'm more of a binger. So that the lucky thing, although it was really hard to acclimate to full-time teaching, um, you have these big ac- breaks from academia. You have like three weeks in January and you have two months in the summer. And essentially, that is when I would write. I can't do it during the semester. That's like a goal for me. I hope someday to have a more manageable life where I can like maybe write for an hour in the morning. But that's not really how I function, just the way my brain is. I'm a little neurodivergent. And I like once I'm into something, I'm in and it's very hard for me to shift. So I leverage those academic breaks. So I have to say, if I had stayed at a place where I had two weeks of vacation, I don't know if I could have ever, like I would go away, my poor children, like I would go hide in a hotel, I would go hide, I would get a lot of, later I got residencies and like grants and stuff to go somewhere and write. And that's how I did it. When you've left it for a while and you have to come back to it, what is that like? How, how, how do you get back into it? This is a very unwelcome craft secret, but I think it's true. And they'll, people will tell this to you and you don't want to hear it. I wouldn't want to hear it. But when you put a book down for a month or two and you go back and look at it, you see it clear, more clearly. So as much as I hate to admit it, because I'm like very frenetic and neurotic and I just want to get things why done. Why is that a bad thing? Does that sort of blow the mystique <laughs> about being in the zone? Or what? why is because that negative? it's stressful to think just how long it takes to write something like that. Now... To be fair, also the first time, um, Melissa Crow, who's a poet that I was reading with last night, who runs the MFA program at UNCW, was saying sort of like labor, your first kid takes forever, your second kid is faster. Um, I wrote another novel in the time it took like for this to come out. Like, so that's with my agent. <laughs> like, it's hopefully going to go out on submission. So it gets easier every time. But I'm impatient. I'm hyper and impatient. And so the idea when people would say, you just need to put it down for a bit, I wanted to like scream. I was like, I don't have time. Like, I need to do this now. Like, I – and it's all – the other thing about the academic schedule is it'd be like, like it's August 2nd. I mean, I, my time is limited. And when I walk back into that semester, I won't touch what I'm doing, whatever that is, for a few more months. And that's hard. Like, 
you don't want to do that, but that's just the reality. It just it takes some time to have the perspective of looking at your manuscript again. Have, you said you've written another novel that's getting shopped around now. Not yet. Where my agent um, is still, and I kind of, the, my agent is Jenny Ferrari Adler, and I think I owe her this. I think she would read it and be like, this is so good. There's so much happening here. But you know, and then she would give me like specific notes. I'd be like, are you serious? <laughs> Just like send it out right now. Um, and because of me and because of my schedule, it might take another year for me to have a, truly a more fully formed revision. And that happened with the first book, and now it's happening with the second book. Um, and I hate it, but I kind of trust that she's right. Um, I think that's a whole nother, maybe an interview for another day, but the publishing industry is in a bit of a free fall, a bit of a constriction. And I didn't realize, even having done an MFA, being super active in the literary world, you you have like one shot with editors, and it doesn't go back. Like, so you want to make sure the product you're sending out is really finished. Yes. So just like it, I feel like I have learned, you need to listen to your readers. You need to listen to your sensitivity readers. You need to listen to your agent who tells you, no, it's not ready yet. Like You're like, I hate all of you. <laughs> like I want this now. But they're probably right. That's good advice for, for everyone, I think. Listen to the feedback that you're getting. That is this edition of Coastline. The book is Down Here We Come Up, out through Black Lawrence Press. Sarah Johnson Allen, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find the episode along with notes and links at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.